0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. In 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is giving instructions to Timothy, and he is talking about uh, basically how, how the church is supposed to operate, and one of the things that he mentions there is uh, that, that Timothy is to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. And so it's a, a common thing that the early church did. And so what we're going to do uh, is, is for the next several weeks as we are in 1 Thessalonians, we are actually going to, um, before we jump into God's Word, we're actually going to have someone read the passage uh, to us as, um, as a church. Um, so Bethany is going to start us this week by reading 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10, our passage for this morning, and then she'll be the one who tells you you can be seated.
1: Please join us in reading from 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ.
0: This morning as we turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, this prayer from the Apostle Paul for the church in Thessalonica, I think it answers one of the most important theological questions that has massive practical implications for how we live our lives. And that is the question, is it possible for us to have assurance Is it possible for us to have confidence that God has saved us? Not just this nebulous, generic sense, but you specifically. Is it possible for you to have confidence that God has saved you? And this is one of the questions that I get probably most common uh, from fellow Christians. I've caught this general sense from people in the church, and that's not just Crosswinds, but the church as a whole here in the United States, that there's this sense that, that we feel like we should be further along in the faith, that there is this disconnect between what we study on Sunday or, or any given morning and the day-to-day lives that we live. And all too often, this realization or this recognition becomes paralyzing for us because maybe we don't doubt our salvation. We, we may not go as far as saying, well, I can't have assurance, but, but there is this wrestling with guilt. Like, is it, is it, should I be further along? Should I be more spiritually mature? I'm struggling with that one sin after all this time. Is God frustrated with me? Am I a Christian? The question, of course, is, is it possible to have assurance, this rock-solid confidence that Jesus will save his people, or maybe to personalize it again, that he will save you. And that's what this morning's text is all about. It's meant to address the many of us who may be well-intentioned, but become paralyzed by doubt and fear from self-examination. Is it possible for us, rather than to experience guilt, doubt, fear, to instead find incredible, freeing joy from resting in the work of God for His people? And that's what this morning's text is all about. Paul opens his letter to the church in Thessalonica with words of thanksgiving. And and as we, we saw, this is a prayer, but it's more than just Paul praying for this church. By what he prays, Paul is asserting his confidence in their faith in the Lord Jesus and, more importantly, God's commitment to save them. Put it another way, this is not just a prayer, even though it certainly is, and we would, we would do well to learn from prioritizing our prayers using the words of Paul here, looking at what Paul prays for and saying, how, how can I make my prayers look more like Paul's prayers? But it's more than that. It's also a teaching. It's a lesson on assurance. And so as we turn our attention to this text, I want us to just latch on to the overarching truth of Paul's words here in chapter one. It is simply this, thank God for the salvation that rests fully in his power and love. Thank God that salvation rest fully in the power of God, in the love of God for his people. Paul's prayer is one of gratitude, thanking God for his work on display in the lives of the Thessalonians. He thanks God for the faithfulness of the Thessalonians, but he roots all of that in a confident assurance that God's work in the Thessalonians depends solely on his power and on his love. And he's confident of that. And I want us to consider that the same can be true of us as well, that our salvation rests fully in the power of God, the love of God, not on our faithfulness, not on our being able to identify enough evidence in our lives of God at work, not on a certain spiritual disciplines that we enact over and over and over again. Thank God that His salvation for us rests fully in His power and His love. Now, as we turn our attention to this passage, we'll notice that that Paul's prayer of of thanksgiving breaks into two parts. First, Paul thanks God for his power and love on display in the Thessalonians. Second, Paul thanks God for the fruit of the gospel in the lives of his people. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as well. First, we're going to look at Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for God's love and power. And then, second, the, the evidence of that in the lives of the Thessalonians. Would you pray with me once more as we approach God's word. Father, we ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to the awesome reality of your love for your people, your power that is strong enough, more than strong enough to save. God, if there are people here this morning who are wrestling with whether or not their faith is genuine, if they can actually be confident that you have saved them, that you will bring them into your kingdom in the end. God, I ask that you would use this text to give them confidence in your awesome power, your unconquerable love. God, at the same time, we ask that you would enable us to be a people where the evidence of the gospel's transformative work is clearly on display in our lives. Help us for Jesus' sake and for our good, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, Paul's letter opens with a typical greeting followed by the beginning of his prayer for the Thessalonians. So in these first few verses, Paul picks up on his gratitude for God's power and love on display in the lives of the Thessalonians. Let's start in verse 1. We give thanks to God always for, I guess I'm going to start in verse 2. Verse 1 is just an intro anyway. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts by saying that the Thessalonians are a regular fixture in his prayers, as well as not just his prayers, but the prayers of his co-laborers who helped plant the church in Thessalonica, Silvanus, who also is known as Silas and Timothy. As we saw last week, they helped him plant the church in Thessalonica. And here we see that Paul regularly carves out time to pray for the church in Thessalonica, not just in a generic sense. But he takes time to pause and to reflect back on his time with them, and he gives thanks for what he saw on display in their lives. Now, notice here in verse 3, he lists three specific attributes that he is especially thankful for. First, he says he thanks God for their work of faith. Paul looks back on his time with the Thessalonians, remembers fondly that their faith led to action. Now, faith is a very commonly used word in Christianity today, as really in the world today. You just got to have faith. But what especially is in view here? The New Testament has a number of passages that define faith, but I find the most helpful to be from Romans chapter 4, speaking of Abraham from the Old Testament and his faith that God who made this promise to him, a a promise that would be impossible to come about except for the direct intervention of God. And how does Abraham respond to this impossible promise of God? Well, we see this in Romans chapter 4. In hope he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I've read this passage a number of times when talking about faith here at Crosswinds. It's because of how it defines faith. In essence, faith is a response to the impossible promises God has made, rooted in God's character. That even when it seems impossible from our perspective, God is worth trusting. And that's simply what faith is. What is it that the... the, Paul has in mind here in 1 Thessalonians, what faith is it that Paul gives thanks for? He thanks God that they responded to the message of the gospel, that God was able to do the impossible. Namely, that he was able to rescue them from the tyranny of sin and death. Now, of course, this understanding of faith necessarily leads to action. That's why Paul says the work of faith. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Faith is this radical trust in the promises of God, the character of God, but that faith is displayed in how we respond in our day-to-day lives. Specifically, verse 3, Paul probably has in mind work that is externally focused, a willingness to tell other people this incredible good news about Jesus. So Paul is overflowing here with thanksgiving because he remembers with fondness, this church that puts their faith into action by telling other people about Jesus. And that's the first category of gratitude from Paul, your work of love, your work of faith. Next, Paul mentions their labor of love. So not only does the gospel produce an active faith, but it also produces an active heart of love. I love this description of love, which is a weird thing to say. But I love it because it reminds us that when we look at love in the Bible, it's rarely a feeling of affection, and it's almost always a commitment to action. Now, that's not to say that feelings of affection are absent. We can read just a few verses later. If you have your Bible open, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, and we see Paul's affection for this church But the the Bible has a similar view of love as it does of faith. Love as an affection is something that expresses itself through how it treats others. Generally, love in the New Testament letters is focused on how we treat our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's in the church. Now, that's not to say we're not supposed to love others outside the church. Jesus makes that clear in Luke chapter 6. If you love those who love you, So we're supposed to love everyone, especially, or including those who are outside the church. But here, as Paul has in view, he specifically focused on love for one another, actions toward those who are in the church. Paul looks back at his time with the Thessalonians with gratitude because he remembers how they sought one another's well-being, how they were committed to serving one another, He probably remembers the tense relationships that existed between some people in the church where they didn't see eye to eye, where disagreements ran rampant, where one party felt as though they were in the right and they had been wronged by another person in the church, and yet in spite of that, they were willing to put aside their differences, put everything aside for the sake of this command to love. And he thanks God for the fruit of the gospel on display in their lives. Finally, Paul mentions their steadfastness and hope in the Lord Jesus. Remember what we saw last week? Paul is writing to this church that is in the fires of affliction. Paul has been forced out of Thessalonica early because of opposition from both Jews and Gentiles. And yet, in spite of this affliction, the church has endured It has persevered. They have not withered away. They haven't become disillusioned with Jesus when things got tough or they didn't line up with their idyllic life. Their hope in Jesus is instead a ballast in the midst of the storm, and Paul thanks God for that. Now we might say, well, what exactly is it that produces this faith, hope, and love? Paul tells us in verses 4 and 5, he first thanks God for the love of that he shows to the Thessalonians in verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. A beautiful verse. Paul assures the church of God's love for them in two ways here in this verse. First and most basically, he just says it. He says, you know what? God loves you. He reminds them of God's love for them. This is one of the most basic truths of Christianity, and yet sometimes it can be one of the hardest to believe for people. That God would love someone like me. Maybe God loved me in the past, but, but what about right now when I've repeatedly wandered away from him, when my life doesn't measure up to what it should, when I say that I'm a Christian, when I'm, I'm one of his followers, and yet there's so little evidence of that, so little fruit in my life of that fact. Sometimes the love of God can be hard to fathom, especially when we find ourselves deep in the midst of failure or doubt or even rejection and anger? Is God's love big enough to, to bear with me even in those moments? Does, does God still love me when my love for him runs cold? Still for others, the, the idea of the love of God can be hard to grasp when we find ourselves in the midst of hardship, when we find ourselves in the midst of suffering. We mistakenly believe that God's love means his blessing with an easy life filled without any hardship. And afflictions can cause us to doubt the love of God when our circumstances overshadow and drown out the constant and steadfast promises of God. And this is the question that Paul is subtly addressing here when he makes this statement. He wants to assure the church in Thessalonica that in spite of their sin and in spite of their failure, in spite of their suffering, God's love remains. God's love for them remains. God is on their side. God is committed to them. His love for his people, his love for you, does not waver. It is bigger than even the biggest failing or the biggest doubt. Paul wants the Thessalonians to have a rock-solid confidence in God's love. Now, why is it that, God, that he is so confident in God's love? Well, that's what he addresses in the second half of verse 4, when he says that God has chosen you. This is an unfathomable thought that God in his great and overwhelming love has chosen his people. And for, for some, this is, this is uncomfortable. It is hard to grasp. After all, how does that fit with the commands in the Bible to, to repent and turn to the Lord Jesus, to believe in the Lord Jesus? Is this passage implying that it is impossible to come to faith in Jesus without his work on our behalf? Those are good and important questions to wrestle through, but notice the context of this declaration. Every single time, including Ephesians chapter 1, which we read earlier, every single time that the Bible mentions election, that the Bible mentions that God chooses people, it is mentioned in the context of unbelievable comfort. How the doctrine of election and the call of the gospel to repent and believe the good news fit together, that's a mystery. But don't let the minutiae overshadow the unbelievable evidence of God's love that Paul declares here for you. He has loved you so much that he set his affections on you even when you were at your most unlovable. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul is saying that if God set his affections on you when you were his enemy, which according to Romans chapter 5, each and every one of us was before the love of Jesus transformed us. If God did that, then what makes us think that any shortcoming, any failing, any doubt, anything at all could change that fact now? If God has done the hard thing, if God has loved us even while we were still his enemies, he will surely do the easy thing. He will keep loving his people in spite of all that life brings. That's the beauty of those words, he has chosen you. They are a great reassurance of God's love for us. And when Paul thinks of the Thessalonians, he has this overflowing gratitude to God for God's love for them. And not so subtly, he's reminding the Thessalonians of what God thinks of them. Even when times are tough, even when they fall short even when they fail. So God's unwavering, fully committed love produces this faith, hope, and love from the church. But Paul mentions a second thing here. He mentions in verse 5 God's unconquerable power on display in the gospel. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul expresses this extreme confidence in God's power to use his word to transform lives. He has let this truth sink deep within to every cell of his body that he looks back on his time with the church in Thessalonica and he says, well, of course you responded to the gospel because that's what God does through his word. Now, Paul isn't expressing arrogance in his ability to preach as though, you know what, I said things in in just good enough of a way. I, I crafted my message well enough that it produced this response of faith in the Thessalonians. No, that's not, that's not what he's saying. He points out that the gospel didn't just come to them in word, but it came to them in power. But the Holy Spirit was at work using it. He's also not saying that everyone who hears the gospel, therefore, will respond positively. No, he's, he knows that's not the way that God works. Instead, he declares with full conviction that when God's word is proclaimed, some people will respond. Specifically in the lives of the Thessalonians, the fact that they did respond reveals God's power in their lives. That's Paul's confidence here. And that's the confidence that we can have in God's power through his word, how he uses his word. God does the exact same thing here, today, right now. God does something spectacular and miraculous when his word is proclaimed. It has nothing to do with me, nothing to do with how well or how poorly or how bad my jokes are when I proclaim the word of God. We can have a radical confidence that God will use his word to transform his people, not because of cleverly crafted arguments, but because God sees fit to use his word to accomplish his work in the lives of his people. God uses his word and his power is on full display whenever his word is proclaimed. Now let's bridge the gap there from the Thessalonians in the first century to us here, 21st century. Specifically, the implications of Paul's prayer for the question of assurance. What what on earth do Paul's words here have to do with assurance? All that comes with it, joy, peace, rest, comfort, etc. So Paul, he's he's praying thankfully, and he roots the the transformation of the Thessalonian church not in any measure of, of their faithfulness in spiritual growth or any attitude or any of that, He roots their growth into utterly dependable truths. The love of God and the power of God through the gospel. And the same is true for us today as well. That our status before God does not rest on our spiritual growth. It does not rest on our faithfulness in the Christian life. It does not rest on the quality or the size of, of our faith it rests simply in the love of God for his people that he loved us when we were unlovable and he won't give up now it rests on the fact that God has chosen you to be his son or daughter and you might ask well how can I be sure how can I be sure that he has chosen me and that's an important question But consider this, only the people who have experienced the love of God would even be worried about that question. Paradoxically, worrying about whether or not God has set his love upon you is evidence that he has. If he hadn't, you wouldn't even be asking that question. So that's what Paul is saying here in the beginning of this prayer, that that God's unshakable love is evidence of his commitment to you, that his unconquerable power is evidence of his commitment to you, such as the power of God when his word is preached that he does something. And that unstoppable power of God will help you to endure to the end. And that's what Paul focuses on in the rest of his prayer of thanksgiving. He's, he's got this, this radical confidence in the power of God at work in the gospel that he trusts that when God speaks, people will respond. And not only respond, but their lives will be transformed. And so he spends the rest of this prayer looking specifically at evidence of the fruit of the gospel in the lives of the Thessalonians. Now here's where this matters to us when it comes to assurance, When we look at what the Bible teaches about assurance, it it reminds us, it's very clear, that spiritual growth, spiritual fruit doesn't save us, and yet spiritual growth and progress are the means through which God gives his people assurance. In other words, a sense of assurance is connected to the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So you could point to fruit spiritual progress as evidence of the love of God and power at work in your life and keeping you. That's a, that's a good thing. But now here's the challenge that faces so many of us, because the moment I say that, we go back to this sense of fear and the sense of anxiety, because we look at our lives and we say, well, I guess assurance is impossible for me because I don't see all that much fruit. I look at my own life and, and I, I don't see that. Now, Paul is aware of that, of that temptation that is facing us. And so he takes time to not leave this in the hands of the Thessalonians, but instead to highlight two ways that he has seen the Spirit transform them, where he has seen God at work in them. And then if that's not enough, he says, oh, and by the way, it's not just me. There, there are other churches that are reporting to me about you as well. And so he gives three other evidence, pieces of evidence for how God has been at work in the lives of the Thessalonians. So here's what Paul is doing. He, he acknowledges that all too often our hearts are, are prone to condemn us. And so one of the reasons why God gives us the church, one of the reasons why God gives us a gift of living in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ is so that they can be a source of assurance for us. That they can identify ways that they have seen God's power at work in our lives. So Paul continues giving thanks here, while highlighting two examples of evidence of faith in their lives meant to give the church comfort and assurance of God's love for them. Let's take a look at verses 6 and 7. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So Paul picks up a theme here that he actually first mentions at the end of verse 5. The Thessalonian church sees his example and follows Paul's example, and by extension, they're following the example of Jesus. So what Paul is saying is that their willingness to cling to Jesus, even in suffering and affliction, it's proof. It's evidence of the power of the gospel in their lives. We could put it another way. We could put it this way. Paul thanks God that they are increasingly imitating him and Jesus with joy in suffering. Paul is essentially saying, don't sell your spiritual growth short. By enduring suffering and hardship like me, by even finding joy, because you trust God will see you through all of this, you are showing your faith in Jesus. I love Paul's words here on the importance of imitation in the Christian life because in a way, that's discipleship. Discipleship is simply just imitating others in their walk with Jesus. Let's be honest, there's a massive cultural gap, there's a massive time gap between what Paul wrote in the first century to Thessalonica and where we are today. Thousands of years, thousands of miles. Faithfulness in a time and place where God has planted you is going to look different in the specifics than it did thousands of years ago in the first century. And so when you read the Bible, you are reading commands that are given to a specific time and place, and some of them are relatively easy to apply to today, but some of them can be hard to figure out, how do I get from there to where we are today? And that's one of the reasons why the church is such a good gift for spiritual growth, because you are surrounded by people you can imitate One of the most important things that you could do for your spiritual life is to ask yourself, who do I want to emulate in the faith? Who has a faith that I want to imitate? Who can I look to as a guide and as a model for how the Christian life uh, applies to to parenting, to marriage, to singleness, to being a student, to being in in an office job, to a job as an educator, to to a job in, in the service industry, to a job on the farm? How can I imitate people that I respect in their following of Jesus? Who might I imitate to apply the gospel to my own life? to show the fruit of the gospel. I think I've, I've shared this before, but one of the most crystallizing examples I have seen of this comes from this little book. It's called The Walk by Michael Card. And in it, Michael Card uh, is he's telling this story of his years-long relationship with William Lane, one of his professors in seminary, and how William Lane showed him how to live. And at one point in the book, Michael Card recounts getting a, a phone call from William Lane, sharing that he had been diagnosed with untreatable cancer. And yet, rather than being distraught, Lane simply said, Michael, I've shown you how a Christian man lives. Now I'm going to show you how a Christian man dies. That's imitation. That's what is in view here, to consider how we honor Jesus in every aspect of our lives. You know what Paul is saying to the Thessalonian church? He's saying, You're doing it. That's evidence right there. That's evidence of your faith, and I thank God for it. He highlights another example of the power of God at work in their lives in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul says that not only did they imitate him in affliction, but they've also got this reputation among the churches for sharing God's word. We could put it another way. Paul thanks God that they increasingly declare the word of God to others. I love the imagery that Paul uses here. He says that the word of God has sounded forth from them throughout their region. He's describing someone standing on top of a mountain shouting her message. And the message is echoing throughout the rest of the mountain range. Now, of course, this means that they were sharing the gospel with other people, but it also just means that they were allowing the word of God to to continually shape the things that they talked about in their lives. God and his word increasingly take up this larger place in their speech. They, they more commonly bring up God, the things of God in their conversations with others. They're quicker to share how God had been at work, how they have seen God at work, how God has answered their prayers. They are quicker to say, you know what? Can we just stop and pray about this real quick when they're in the midst of a conversation with someone else? The evidence of the Spirit at work in their lives is how the the Word of God is taking a place of greater prominence in their lives. But that's not all. In addition, that's what Paul is seeing. Paul's remembering his time with them. After that, Paul actually says, you know what, I I can't help but thank God for how other churches have seen this at work as well. So he gives three other examples of God's love and power in their lives that other churches have seen and have told Paul about. That's what we see in verse 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I love these verses. They're just they're positive gossip is what they are. That's, that's what they are. He's saying, you know what? People are talking about you. And the things that they are saying are so encouraging that I can't not tell you what they're saying. What specifically does he say other churches have noticed from the Thessalonians? Well, first he says this, other churches bear witness to your reception of me. Paul, the wording here at the beginning of verse 9 is a little bit odd, but Paul is basically saying, you know, other churches have told me that they heard good things about how you treated me when I was in Thessalonica. That when I showed up in Thessalonica, there is this reputation from how you treated me in our region of your hospitality. Of your love. And Paul points to that as evidence of the gospel at work in their lives. The reputation of a church will tell you a whole lot about the people who attend it. And for Paul and the Thessalonian church, it was positive. They were a people who loved well. Second, Paul shares a, another piece of news he's heard from other churches about the Thessalonians. Other churches bear witness to the Thessalonians' abandonment of idols. i like to imagine what this was like for Paul, how this got brought up in conversation. So Paul is checking in with other churches in the region of Macedonia, the region of Micaiah, uh, Achaia, and he's encouraging them in their progress of the faith, encouraging them to turn away from idols and follow the true and living God, and they're like, oh yeah, you mean like the church in Thessalonica? Paul says, what do you mean? And they say, well, we remember what they were like. That place is a cesspool of idolatry. But not them. They are steadfastly and joyfully committed to the true and living God. And Paul cannot help but share this news because it has given him so much joy. And he shares it with the Thessalonian church so they can see it too. You realize how people are talking about you, how how they're saying, you know, you've rid your lives of idolatry, and that's motivating them to do the same as well. They're following your example. Finally, Paul mentions one other common theme that churches have mentioned about this church. Other churches bear witness to the Thessalonians' great hope in affliction. Even as the Thessalonians followed Paul's example of joy and perseverance in hardship, now other churches are looking to them as an example to follow. As they imitate Paul, who is imitating Jesus, now other churches are looking to them and saying, we can do that too. We can follow their example. Specifically here, Paul is mentioning this great hope of the Thessalonians and how they have that even when they suffer. And other churches, as they suffer for the gospel, have apparently been able to say, we're not alone. The Thessalonians are doing it. They're suffering too, and they continue to hope in the Lord Jesus. We can do it too. No wonder Paul thanks God for this church, right? Because whether they realize it or not, whether they are too close to their failures and shortcomings to see their progress in the faith, to see the evidence of God at work in their lives, he assures them, you know what God is working in you, that your faith is genuine. And the same could be true of us today. Remember the overarching message of this passage. Thank God that salvation rests fully in God's power and love. That's why assurance in the faith is, is possible. It's because salvation doesn't rest in our hands, but it's in God's alone, and he is faithful to bring it to completion. You know, very practically, this passage is a call to thank God for the faith of other believers, how, how you've seen faith at work in people's lives, how you've seen God's power and love on display in their lives. But more specifically, it's also an opportunity to publicly thank God for how his power and love is on display in other people. Here's what I mean by that. Paul doesn't just thank God for what he's seen in the Thessalonians privately. He intentionally makes sure that they are aware of what he is thanking God for in their lives. He doesn't just pray this and keep it to himself. He specifically mentions to them, to encourage them. One of the things we're going to see as we work our way through 1 Thessalonians is Paul has this phrase where he he says it a couple different ways. But he says, you're doing this, now do it more and more. And this is what Paul is setting the groundwork for right here. And what if we did the same? What if as we go from here, we took time to thank God for his work in the lives of two or three people as we're, we're reflecting on it but we also send them a text or we write them a note or we give them a call and say, you know what? I've seen evidence of God's power and love in your life and I thank God for it. Imagine how assuring and comforting and encouraging that would be. Imagine how God might use us to strengthen the faith, encourage the faith of those who are around us. Thank God that his salvation rests fully in his power and love. What was true then is true now as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your love endures, that you are strong enough to save, that you are at work that you are using your word to transform your people. God, I pray that you would give us, even now, that you would bring to mind one, two, three people that we can thank you for how we've seen the fruit of the gospel in their lives. And God, that we would even have the boldness. might be a little uncomfortable to share that with them. That we would encourage one another. That we would strengthen faith. That we would help one another to endure to the end. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.